What in the world is data science? We hear that term used all the time. I don't think all that many people really, really know. But today, on episode 274 of CXO Talk, we are speaking with one of the world's top data scientists. And by George, he knows, and he's gonna tell us today. I'm Michael Krigsman. I'm an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to Livestream, which has been supporting CXO Talk and providing our video streaming infrastructure for the last two years. They're great. Go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk and they will give you a discount. And then I have one small favor. Would you please right now tell a friend Tell a friend to join, like us on Facebook also. Please do that. Without further ado, it is my unalloyed pleasure to introduce Anthony Scrifignano. He's the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet, and he's been on this show before, and it's always a pleasure. Anthony, how are you, and welcome back. Michael, thank you very much for inviting me back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, I am as well. So, Anthony, let's begin very briefly. Tell us about Dun & Bradstreet. So, Dun & Bradstreet is uh, one of the oldest companies in the United States. It's a very global company. We've been around, we're in our 176th year right now, which is pretty rare air. Uh, we deal with commercial credit and also sales and marketing and compliance. We help businesses know about each other all over the world for various purposes, total risk, total opportunity. Well, you are a company that's been around over 100 years, and that is definitely pretty rare air. So you're the chief data scientist. What, what does that actually mean? Well, I have, I, I like to joke that I have four thirds to my job because there's no reason why there should only be three thirds. Um, so part of what I do is focused on hardcore data science, understanding emerging capabilities uh, as those emerging capabilities may apply to what we do and to what our customers do. Another part of what I do has to deal with working with governments around the world to help them understand the implications of regulations and, and various uses of data and sometimes misuses of data. And then I work with our largest customers to help them basically use what we do in a, in a higher order to answer better questions, more complex questions. And then I try to help our company behave in a more global way. So interacting around the world with our, our network of, of um, companies that we deal with and making sure that we are truly behaving in a global way in this very global economy that we're in right now. Okay, so you've got your hand throughout Dun & Bradstreet's data, business data analysis. And obviously you're a data business, so you're central to this very large organization's use of data. And you know, we're talking today about demystifying data science. And maybe a good place to start is to ask you the most basic question, which is when we talk about data science, what is that? What do we mean? So it's a, it's a great question, and I'm going to warn you right now that if you ask different people, you will get slightly divergent answers to that. I have a background in hard science, so I tend to approach this in a very scientific way. So to me, data science is the science of using data, and science means doing things scientifically, observing the world, understanding what's going on in some way, forming some sort of hypotheses, asking important questions, selecting methodologies to answer those questions, 
then collecting data, understanding the data in the context of the question and the bias in the data, and then forming some sort of conclusions and then informing others and hopefully lather, rinse, repeat. So data science is using data in a scientific way to do things that are meaningful to answer questions. You will get other answers to that question that involve lots of mentioning of tools and environments and technologies, and people will talk about artificial intelligence and the internet of things and blockchain. And all of those things are, to me, part of the environment that informs these important questions that we ask in the data science community. So you clearly make the distinction between the the notion of data science, which is really where I think we should drill down into next. And I was going to say the expression of data science through tools or techniques, but I'm not sure that that's even the right way to describe yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's very true. So if you asked someone, what is medicine? If you asked a doctor, what is medicine? The doctor wouldn't start by saying, by listing all of the medical procedures and all of the pharmacology. And the doctor would start with, well, it's, you know, we start with a human body and we start with understanding the human body. And we start with observing something about that body that we want to address or, or prevent. And then we intervene in certain ways. It's the same kind of thing. So we have to take a, a, an approach that says, look, we've got all these tools, we've got all these technologies, we're living in a world that is just increasing amounts of data, arguably unmeasurable rates of increase. What do we do with all of this to address these questions that we have? And, what, and how do we address those questions in a way that might be reproducible to others? And that's where the science part of it comes in. You know, again, you, I'm, I'm basically confused. So rather than me try to, to, to try to say it, Try to, would you un, unconfuse me? But then again, how do you know what I'm confused about, right? <laughs> I think I have an idea. Let me, maybe an example would be helpful. Um, so I, our company collects data from all over the world. Uh, it's updated millions of times a day. It's updated from integrated supply chains. There's different languages. There's different writing systems. It's an insanely complex data environment. Overwhelmingly complex. Someone might come in and say, well, what can we do with all this data? And my answer would be, well, <laughs> what makes you think you need to use this data? What are, what's the question? What's the problem? What's the challenge? And eventually we go through this little kabuki dance. And let's say, for example, that, that someone says to me, well, I want to see if I, can, if I can understand better that if I acquire this other company, which I'm considering acquiring, they seem to have a million customers. I think I have 3 million customers. I'm pretty sure that means I don't have 4 million customers when I'm done because we have some customers in common. So let's start there. Like what's the overlap between us and them? And then as a scientist, I would say, all right, so when you say overlap, I want to define that term. You mean customers in common. And then they might think about it and say, well, yeah, but maybe vendors in common would be helpful too. And Maybe we should understand if people who are my competitors are their customers, and maybe we should understand if their counterparties in lawsuits are maybe people that I have relationships with. And we start to get more nuanced about this concept of overlap. Eventually, when I get a good working definition of what they mean by overlap, and I get a good working definition of what this problem is that they're trying to address, then I start to look at the data and say, all right, now... How can we address that important question that you asked about overlap defined very carefully in this, these four or five dimensions with this data that we have? And by the way, maybe with other data that's not in this corpus of data, 
to inform the question that you're asking. And then we go at it with all the tools and all the technology and all the capabilities to answer the question. We don't jump right into the data and the tools, which is easy to do these days. There's lots of tools and there's lots of data. So it's very easy to do that upside down and just start mucking around in the data before you ask those important questions. And then you'll forget about the vendors or you'll forget about the lawsuits or you'll forget about the partners. And then you'll be back doing it again. And you'll be sort of repeating your, your journey into this data and you'll you'll very possibly miss opportunity because it'll take you too long. Okay, then to summarize, you begin with some business problem that you believe can that the data can help you solve. And then the next step is to determine what data do you have available. And then the next step after that is to figure out how can we slice, dice, use, combine, intersect, de-intersect, mangle in a thousand different ways. Is that fair, what I've just said? Not, or not, not really? I might add a few steps in there, but I would agree with all of those steps. So you start by observing the environment, then you ask an important question, then you formulate some hypotheses that are related to that question and those observations of the environment. Then you go understand what other people may have done before you to answer that question so you're sort of not reinventing the wheel. Then you jump into picking a methodology, defending it, executing it, collecting your data, et cetera. So yes, it's all those things you said. And then there's these things we all learned in physics class or chemistry class. You know, How do you construct a valid experiment? You've got to do all of those things. And a lot of times they're done intuitively. If you talk to many data scientists, they'll say, Africa, that's just, you're making it way too complicated. That's going to take forever. Many of those steps that I just talked about can happen in, in some, somewhat in an instant with, with proper experience and with proper exposure to methods and the literature and what's going on. We try to stay very current in terms of what's happening in the world around us. So I can almost do a literature review, not completely in my head, but I know where to go. If somebody says, look, we're, we're dealing with cybersecurity and the internet of things, I'm not going to start by, you know, going to a search engine and, and trying to figure out what those two terms mean. I've read current literature on what's happening in that space. I have some idea of who the key players are. I have some idea of what the recent evolutions are. So I'm not starting from this blank slate that we often start in if we were going to study exoplanets or something, you know, very geeky scientific thing. Okay, so you so you have a, a palette of techniques that will naturally and usually pretty quickly uh, seem appropriate to addressing a particular type of domain problem. And, and at the same time, don't ignore the fact that there might be new things happening that you're not aware of. It's a lot like going to a, an emergency room. You walk in with, you know, some problem and you, you, you don't expect the people that you're talking to to just be on their iPads trying to figure out what these symptoms mean. They have some experience that they bring to the table. They've got a room full of tools and technology, and they've got experts that they can call in to work with them. And, and at some point, they might do some research, too, if it gets tricky. But because of their experience and their tools and their 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 comfort and, and facility with using those tools, they can get you to a solution in a way that maybe you would never get to, and certainly in a way that's faster than you would get there. Data science is a lot like that. I'm not trying to make it sound overly complex, but there's there's a tendency these days to just, when you ask that question, start talking about tools or to start talking about 
methods and data. Important, necessary, but not sufficient. You should start with your belief systems, with their, with a guiding question, with an understanding of the fact that you want to do this in some methodological way that, that you can repeat, that you can explain, that you can defend. That's where the science part comes in. And that's the difference between somebody that just has a toolbox with a bunch of tools in it and somebody that's acting as a practitioner in this space. I want to talk about how you can define the problems in in the right way. But first, I want to remind everybody that we're speaking with Anthony Scrifignano, who is the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. Right now, there's a tweet chat going on using the hashtag CXOTalk, and you can ask Anthony your data science questions. So Anthony, how do you formulate the problem in the right way? So let me give you an example. You just mentioned that there's a tweet chat going on. So I was trying to listen to that as a data challenge. If somebody said to me, there's a tweet chat going on. Well, well how do they feel? How, how do these people who are tweet chatting feel? Do they feel positive about what's going on or do they hate what's going on? If they hate what's going on, maybe it's early enough in the show that we can kind of, you know, change the direction of the boat a little bit, you know, do something to, to serve them better. That is a question that involves unstructured data. It involves observing that, well, the tweet chat there's tweets, right? So the people are articulating things. It's not just the, the number of characters in the tweet. There's a bunch of metadata that comes along with every tweet that tells you about the profile of the user and possibly their background. There's information that can be connected to that about what you might have known about them before or what they might have disclosed about themselves. So there are methods that can be used to do very simple sentiment analysis or more complex network analysis, or even more complex inferential computational linguistics. We gotta figure out where we need to go with a question like that. And the answer involves, we only have a certain amount of time. We need to do it kinda now. So maybe we're gonna have to cut it off in terms of the what could be done versus what will be done. At the same time, we've gotta sort of assess whether the answer we're getting is useful enough to be actionable, that we can do something, that would be an example where you wouldn't want to just jump in and start looking at the tweets. Now, if there's only 10 tweets, just read the tweets. You don't need tools for that. But imagine there was 10,000 or a million tweets, right? Then maybe you need a little help with some data science, some technology, some tools, some practitioner experience around language and, and sentiment and clustering, things like that. So one of the differences then between a data scientist and somebody using Excel to perform analysis on a set of data is the scale. Is that an accurate statement? It can be. I use Excel from time to time. It, it, you know, it's a tool and it has limitations in terms of the amount of data it can munge and what it can do with that data. Sometimes that's all you need to do. So you know, there are times where a, an experienced automotive mechanic uses a hammer. I, it's fine. And I'm not calling Excel a hammer. Um, definitely the volume of data. So we always have these five Vs, right? Or we even argue about how many Vs there are. But volume, velocity, veracity, variety, value, those are the ones I look at. Um, when any of those Vs overwhelms the best attempts to deal with them, you have a big data problem. And when you have a big data problem, you probably need some data science to help you address that in a, in a methodological way. So yes, volume is a good place to start, but I wouldn't just say because you have a lot of data, now you have one of these problems. Because if, imagine I just had 
you know, weather data for the past hundred years. And I want to know what the average temperature is in New York. Find the column or the row that tells you that you're in New York and the temperature and do the math. It's, that's not a big complicated problem. If somebody came along and said, well, wait, hold on, you know, you just assume that these temperature readings were taken at the same interval and that they were taken with the same equipment that had the same kind of bias into it. And that's not really true. You know, you can imagine how we could nuance that answer a little bit by somebody who knew a little bit more about the data, sort of reminding you to ask a few questions you might've forgotten to ask because you were too busy jumping into the data and calculating something. And uh, would you just repeat for a moment those the five elements that you just that you mentioned? Hopefully, I can repeat them: um, volume, velocity, veracity, variety, value. Volume is how much do you have. Variety is how it changes. So sometimes you have string data, sometimes you have uh, numerical data, sometimes you have video. Those are that's variety. The different types of data. Uh, velocity is how quickly it's changing over time. Is it changing once every millisecond or once every month? Um, veracity is the truthiness of the data. All data isn't true, and not even all true data is true all the time. So if you looked at the number of people in Times Square, it might have been true at the time you collected it, but it might not be true anymore right now. And then value is really the the degree to which the data that you're looking at intersects usefully with the question you're trying to ask. So if we go back to that Twitter data, and I wanted to use the Twitter data to tell me something about how frequently people use Twitter, that'd be a bad question to ask just by looking at the tweet chat about this CXO talk. You have to kind of zoom out to ask a question like that. So that would be a value type conversation. Okay, let's let's be concrete for a second. And by the way, we're getting questions from Twitter. Zachary Jeans is asking about data scientists and where they get training. But let's come back to that, because I definitely want to talk about that. Yeah, it's an important question. Uh, but let's use an example. I want to know about the people who are engaged in the tweet chat going on right now using the hashtag CXO talk. So let's have a little dialogue. Michael, what would you like to know about them? Well, I want to know who they are and what are the what are the patterns? When you say who they are, do you mean their identity as a person or do you mean that you want to understand the archetypical users, the archetypical in, engaged people? I want to know the pattern of are there similarities among these people? What are their what are their what are the common attributes or in other words why are they here? Now, those are two different questions. So the common attributes, we can start with their Twitter profiles and we can look at what they've disclosed about themselves. Or we could possibly fold that into trying to see if they have a discoverable social media profile, maybe on LinkedIn or may, I don't want to keep naming platforms, but maybe in, in, in some other uh, social media platform where they, they might have information about their, their title and the, the company that they work for and their educational background, et cetera. So I might see if there's a way permissibly to use data like that to give you an answer. You also talked about uh, why they are here. And that's a very different question. And one that I would say philosophers have been asking for centuries, right? So there I probably millennia. So what I would do with that one is I would probably start with a few hypotheses. I would probably start with, well, they're here because they're in some way associated with technology 
or they're here because they're in some way associated with new media, or they're here because they are in some way associated with my network or your network. Those are three hypotheses. I would come up with seven or eight or 10 hypotheses, and I would say, what are the the, the attributes that we can discover that would confirm or, or refute those hypotheses, scale them, do some math, do some curation of data, and I'll bet you within a very short order, I could come up with a pretty good profile for you. Would it be perfect? Absolutely not. Because you don't know if somebody's here who's your somehow your competitor and they're watching you so that they can see how they can do what you do better or something like that. We, we don't know. There will be things that will not be easily discoverable. So we have to also have a conversation about the bias. Michael, let me tell you some things I can't see here. And then there's also the things I won't see, right? I'm probably not going to have a conversation about, you know, the things you're not really, you have to be very careful about um, making observations about maybe race or religion or something. So I would probably steer away from those things. So we, we'd have that conversation. Wouldn't take long. And you know, because you've had conversations like this with me. And then we'd do a little fancy data science and I'd give you some answers and hopefully there would be action. Okay, but but so you give me so you do some fancy data science, but you know, aside from the volume and the uh, velocity issues of that data stream that's that's coming in, quite frankly, I can I can pick out these conclusions you were just describing simply by eyeballing the the tweets. So in this particular case, we're kind of torturing this example, there's probably not enough data to really require an overly robust analysis. But imagine if you ask that question about every CXO talk going back several hundred, and imagine if you wanted to then juxtapose that observation with some other show that you consider to be either very similar or very different, and you wanted to understand the nuanced interaction between the, now it, I can overwhelm it very quickly. So um, there's what you just talked about is a, what's called a heuristic approach. Can we build a data science method that would mirror the behavior of a group of similarly instructed, similarly incented experts? So can I teach this, this thing I'm building to behave like you? to observe what you would observe and then go do it a million times because you're busy or you would get tired. By the way, even if you think you can do that, when you try to do that a thousand times, you start to get tired. You start to maybe remember things that you've already seen. There's types of bias that are introduced even in an expert like yourself when you try to do the same thing over and over and over again. And then there's confirmation bias. You want the answer to be a certain way, so you notice certain things more than other things. So people often feel like, gee, if I just did it myself, I could do this. You, When you do it yourself, you introduce types of bias that might be problematic, depending on what you're going to do with the answer. Well, it turns out that computers are pretty good at these kinds of uh, rapid calculations. I always say that it's better to be consistently wrong than inconsistently right, right? When you when you design a method, you can at least be consistent. And if you don't like the method, if it's consistently wrong, then you can tune it. You can work with it over time. But when you get a bunch of people doing something, certain things, you know, they have different opinions. They have pessimism and optimism. They get tired. They they want to do well for you. They want to please you. They, you got to control for all these things. And it, it gets very complicated when people get involved. What I'm still confused about is 
how is data science different from any other kind of analytic technique? You've got a body of data. You understand what you have. You understand what you're, where you're trying to go, the problem that, that you're trying to solve. You may look for sentiment. In the case of language, you may do lexical parsing. There's all kinds of techniques that you can use. But data science has come to be deified. And or, or vilified, yeah. Uh, well, I guess, I, yeah, I guess that's an interesting point. Either deified or vilified. If you're Facebook and making a lot of money, then it's pretty, pretty darn good for you. On the other hand, if you're suffering from uh, fake, from, from being manipulated. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, so what, let, let's, let's actually talk about this notion of using data science. How would you, how do you, how does an organization like Facebook use data science to manipulate perception? That starts to become a pretty interesting and a lot more complex problem than the tweet chat that's going on, you know, analyzing the CXO talk hashtag. Yeah, I don't want to try to channel my, my inner Facebook uh, executive to answer that question, but let me answer the question in a different way. Um, there are some roles. Let, let's get off the term data scientist for a second. Um, there are some roles that existed way before we started using this term. Uh, analyst, modeler, statistician, methodologist, um, uh, data steward. Uh, I use the term data curator. It's, there's a slight difference. Um, these things are all part of the role of being a data scientist today, certainly, but so is being a governance expert to some extent. Maybe not an expert, but you've got to have an, uh, more than a passing awareness of what you may use and may not use and where you may and may not use it and how you can move data. Uh, problem formulation, we've been talking about that. That's huge right now. Opportunity formulation, if you will. Detective, visionary, storyteller, uh, diplomat. These are all skills that are part of that job now. And you don't get all those skills with everybody. So you have to understand where the strengths and, and maybe opportunities are within a, a cadre of data scientists, just like you would within a cadre of ER physicians or a cadre of 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 diplomats, right? So, you know, you've got diplomats that understand technology and you've got diplomats that don't. Well, you've got technologists that understand diplomacy and technologists that don't. Um, this is really becoming a field that requires a, a, a fairly renaissance set of skills to get it right because there's so many tools and there's so much data. It's not about the tools and the data anymore. Yes, you need to be able to be very good with tools and very good with data. That's kind of table stakes. But you need to be better at at least one or two other things to be meaningfully useful and differentiated from the crowd in this space these days because a lot of those things are becoming commoditized. Okay, so let's now take this to the next level. And I know that it's not about the tools, but you've got your data, you have the problem that you're trying to solve, where do tools like artificial intelligence, for example, come into play? And is it even fair to say that artificial intelligence is a tool or is it more of an umbrella marketing term 
And what about terms like machine learning, deep learning, cognitive? Where do those fit into play? So I've just asked you about five or 10 questions all rolled Yeah, that's about one. eight CXO talks right there. <laughs> but if I could sort of uh, try to summarize that, um, this term artificial intelligence, we need another word. We need a new term because it's just taking on too much. And it's becoming this all-encompassing term that can mean so many things. In general, you have supervised methods, which essentially involve training. You look at a bunch of data, you do a bunch of regressive analysis, you come up with equations that kind of model the data and would have worked had you had them in the past. And then you you make the assumption that the future can somehow be compared to the past and you start to apply those models and you tune them as you go along. And those are supervised methods. A lot of things that we do with um, language, for example, because language is so complex, involve asking people to sort of look at sample documents and do the digital equivalent of highlighting them in various ways. And then we we teach, we train algorithms to, to understand how that was done. And then we say, go forth and do it. Well, what happens when the text changes, right? Unsupervised methods are kind of the antithesis of that. So they, they're not working with training data. They're working with uh, different types of, of uh, so you mentioned deep belief and deep learning. Those are, um, in many ways, um, there's an intersection, a big intersection there with um, forming uh, digital hypotheses, working with the data and sort of constantly revising those and forming new pathways. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the term neuromorphic methods. Those are methods that are designed to model the way we think we think. So that would be um, an interesting diversion there. And then you also have reinforcement methods, which are also part of um, artificial intelligence. So you mentioned cognitive. Uh, cognitive computing is an awesome, amazing um, approach that really doesn't give you an answer. It's kind of walks alongside you, reads everything you would read if you had time, knows everything you would know if you remembered everything you knew before, makes suggestions to you about what you should probably do, watches whether you take those suggestions or not, and then tries to get better at whispering in your ear the next time. Well, what is that? You know, so reinforcement methods are very, very interesting. Um, now I'm going to fold all of that, all of those AI methods on top of something like um, trying to use artificial intelligence for something like autonomy. So artificial intelligence generally has a goal. It's trying to achieve something, you know, best chess move or the, the next best uh, design for this, this seal on this um, tank that's got to be in this kind of an environment, that kind of thing. What happens when we have autonomous devices that have been given goals and then the environment changes in a way that was unanticipated? The AI needs to be able to modify its goal. And so if we're going to let the AI modify its goal based on a change in the environment, then it's got to have some sort of higher level understanding of a broader set of goals or it's going to be doing the equivalent of flipping a coin. I don't think I want drones and self-driving cars flipping coins. So we're going to probably have to give them guiding principles, just like we have when we drive a car or when we, we do something inherently complex like that. We say, look, you're supposed to get where you're going. You're supposed to drive safely. And if an elephant walks out in the middle of the road and you've never seen that before and never contemplated it, you don't just let go of the wheel. You, you do something by using a higher set of reasoning. And so we've got to be able to embody that 
AI goal modification is both fascinating and terrifying at the same time. There are some very famous people who have written on this subject and basically said, be very afraid. I'm a little afraid, but I think we'll still be able to stay out in the head for the next generation or so. It's definitely something to think about. So AI goal modification, that's where where it does be, where we have to, I was going to say where it becomes scary because we need to make a leap of faith that the people designing the system, A, haven't introduced the kind of uh, bias that would lead to very, very terrible unintended consequences, and B, haven't co-opted the system for their own uh, personal or organizational, political, nationalistic objectives. Yeah, these are all issues that are very much at the forefront of uh, what data scientists are doing in their day job when they're working in those fields, right? So I love it when people talk about eliminating bias. In almost all cases, when you when that's your goal, when you, when you set out to eliminate bias, you sort of trade it for some other kind of bias. If nothing else, a bias toward structured data or standardized things or whatever. Um, you know, um, if we use some sort of AI method to figure out who gets parole or who gets um, arrested or who gets stopped or who gets, um, you know, the extra super duper, you know, please come into this room screening before they get on the airplane. There's certain guiding principles. We don't want to use certain types of information to make those decisions because it's either unconstitutional or it's unpopular or it's ill-advised, right? It might be that a machine, if it weren't given those higher order principles, might reach the conclusion that those are exactly the types of attributes you want to look at to, to correlate most with the type of person you're trying to find. You can't do that and you shouldn't do that and we won't do that. So how do we teach our our tools and our technology like we teach our children. Uh, you know, this is a technology that's in its adolescence right now. It's a really good question to ask. And then you bring up implicitly this rush to market, right? If you take forever to answer questions like that, your competitor beats you and they get their product on the market. I was watching, um, I, I was surfing around this morning in Japan Times, there was an article about a, a Ryokan in Japan that has, um, you know, you go into these sort of beautiful bucolic settings and they have these magnificent hotels and you walk around in the yokata and, you, you know, there's shoji screens everywhere. It's a very ancient feeling environment. They have self-parking slippers. You, you can take your slippers off and it's kind of like a Roomba. You know, it'll, it'll find where it's supposed to go and the slippers kind of park themselves, right? And it's, it's one of the companies that's making the self-parking technology for cars. And I guess they might have done it as a publicity stunt, but the cushions self-park themselves on the tatami mats and the, the slippers self-park themselves in where they should be, right? It's, it's very clever. I'm sure that people find it very amusing to look at. It's brilliant, right? You know, at another level, if I'm in this kind of ancient environment, do I want my slippers walking away from me? I, and, and is it really so hard for me to just go put my slippers where they belong? I, I think that, um, Hopefully that was done with some element of tongue-in-cheek, you know, marketing. But, um, you know, we got to—is <laughs> that the best problem that we can solve right now? Like, you know, let's zoom out. If you're the company that 
wants to get more customers in your Reocon or you want to demonstrate how well you can your parking technology works, maybe you say no. That that's exactly the best bet I can make right now. I'm not a CMO. I don't. I don't. Fortunately, I don't have to make decisions like that. Those are really tough decisions. And then the, you know, the the legal people get involved and they say, well, it's probably safer to smash into another slipper than into another car. Let's test it this way. Those are. We have a, a question from Twitter, a really interesting one from Gus Beckdash, and it relates to this ethical discussion we just we just were having. Is there should there be a set of ethical gateways? that are applied to the development of these technologies. How would you like to, I mean, you're a data scientist, you're developing these, these techniques, technologies. How would you like to have the big brother overseer uh, being, look at, being part of your work, looking over your shoulder? Because as society, we have to be careful about what you're doing, Anthony. You do. Um, <laughs> you know, we, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but I work with them all the time. Um, there are guiding principles in the law, and lawyers don't agree on them. Um, we've been trying, you know, we have constitutions which set out sort of general principles, and then we write laws and try to follow that. It's this is very tricky stuff when you start setting out guiding principles, and you, you know, AI should be explainable. That sounds great. So I should be able to understand why the AI agent reached the conclusion that it did. If I said to you, well, you can either have explainable AI or a better auto flight system on the airplane, but you can't have both because some of the methods that it's using to make a decision about whether to, you know, change the flap settings or, or you know, uh, do something with the auto thrust. It's, it's, it, there's a complex mirror. It, it's not explainable in English. We're doing this with a model. It's, it, 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 there's not, it's too complex to explain it. And if you reduce my, actions to only those things that I can explain, then I'm not going to do the best thing. Are you willing to make that choice? I, I, you know, if it's a robotic surgeon or an auto flight system, I'm probably going to say, I need to think about that. And if you want to breathe down my neck and say, uh, you just violated the explainability edict and therefore, you know, we're going to sue you, then I'm going to be super careful about what I create. And it's going to be a lot more pedantic and a lot more sort of obvious because I'm going to be careful about not getting sued and then maybe I won't do the best job I can for you. So there's a direct trade-off between oversight and the ability to innovate, essentially. And it doesn't mean, therefore, there should be no oversight. There should absolutely be oversight. But these are tricky problems. We're not done figuring this stuff out yet. There's a whole degree of ethical considerate and we still have bioethical conversations today we just have to have more of these in the digital space but it's it we're not done with any of this anywhere uh i don't think we've figured out the universally best use for a hammer right so you know we just i think it's important and i'm sorry i forgot the name of the person who asked the question please keep asking that question right it's important that that question be brought to the forefront and that people who understand what they're talking about sort of advise on the the pendulum can swing both ways and you have to understand what happens if it swings all the way over here and what happens if it swings all the way over there and let's not just look for this binary answer because it's not that simple what happens when these self-learning systems or let's not use that term as you were describing it earlier systems that adapt based on changes in the environment what happens when that sequence 
magnifies or is multiplied over and over and over and over and over again so that the explainability that you just described becomes in a practical way almost impossible because you can't go back, 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 back a thousand, a hundred, a million iterations ago to see what caused this new path. I, I think to some extent we're already there with the check engine light, right? There, there's Our devices tell us things that they then do a very poor job of explaining why they told us. And we just say, well, you need a new oxygen sensor or you need a new, you know, this or that. And we start changing things until the light goes out, right? I know mechanics do a better job than that. But there, there are situations where um, the, the feedback that we're getting was not nuanced enough to tell us really why it happened. And that doesn't mean we don't want that feedback, you know, before the, when the space shuttle was a thing, right? Um, there was more than one computer sort of looking at the same parameters and kind of voting on whether we should take off or not. And once in a while, one of the computers votes no and just stop. And then sometimes you can, usually you can sort it out, but, you know, occasionally there are glitches and gremlins. And I think you, you have to decide um, how many false positives you want to have. What's the, what's the cost of being wrong and saying no versus wrong and saying yes. Um, you know, these are the good news is these are not, none of these are new questions. We're just applying them to a new science. You just did something, which I think is a great uh, first principle, which is try to avoid anthropomorphizing this technology. When the computer decides, when the computer learns, it's, I mean, it technically it's making a decision, but it's not, it's not cognitive in the sense of our human brain making that decision, even if you use the neuromorphic method. So I think we need some better words for learning and for um, synthesis and for decision that apply to autonomous agents, that apply to digital agents. We don't have the right nouns and verbs. And so we're using the ones that apply to human beings. And our devices are getting a lot smarter and it's getting a lot more dangerous to use human terms to describe these non-human devices. You know, we're, we're almost out of time, and we haven't at all spoken about what's the best uh, way to learn to be a data science, how is the, what is the best way for organizations to hire data scientists, what is the best way for organizations to manage data scientists to get the best results? What kind of problems are most useful uh, for data science? And if you want to become a data science, let's say you have kids who, uh, who are interested in becoming data scientists, what should they do? So uh, <laughs> how's that? Uh, okay, so I got learn, hire, manage, focus their effort, and inspire. That, that's an awesome list, right? Um, let me start with learn. How do you learn all this? Um, I advise a number of academic programs around the world. And one of the questions I always ask is I sort of, I, I channel the question that's already been asked in, in the academic community, which is what do we teach today that's going to be relevant in two or three years when these students graduate? That's a very big question. Increasingly, my advice is I get why you have to teach them specific tools. I'm trying not to rattle off a set of tools because then I'm, advertising for products, but, um, you know, this language or this environment or this database system, or, you know, there's certain like favorite tools and environments today, right? So do you need to teach that? Well, 
I guess you need to teach that. But if you show me your curriculum and all you're doing is teaching the students how to use those tools, I'm pretty sure that by the time they graduate, those tools will be old. There'll be newer versions of those tools or there'll be other tools. So yeah, they need to know how to use a tool because you can't do anything without using a tool, but that's, it's sort of necessary, but not sufficient. And then the conversation goes to, well, what else do we have to teach them? Well, problem formulation would be nice. Something about understanding basic methods like statistical sampling methods and bias. And, you know, you, you don't have to be a, a necessarily the world's best mathematician, but you probably should understand basic probability, basic statistics, basic um, mathematical techniques for doing things, understanding sampling methods, et cetera. So there's some element of that. What about the actual new, you know, emerging capability? Do we need to teach them about the Internet of Things and blockchain? And yeah, there probably should be some sort of general survey course on where are the new technologies going. And so we get there. We eventually get to this curriculum approach that has like all these different pieces in it. And then someone comes along and says, I don't think you need no stinking degree. I think you can just learn all this. It's There's open source tools. There's 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 things you could go on on uh, on the internet. I'm not going to name places again, um, and take courses. Why don't you just learn it yourself? Well, you might have the discipline to do that. The danger would be that you don't have a spirit guide. How do you know what you should be going learning? What you should go and learn, including English. Um, that's a tricky question unless you have someone walking alongside you who's going to say, "Well, if you go down that path, you know, you're really looking at." a supervised learning method, just be careful. You don't reach the conclusion that you can machine learn your way out of everything. There's other types of methods. And then you say, well, what types of methods? And then we have the conversation we had before. So having a spirit guide is pretty important. How do you hire? Um, I gave you a list before of sort of the before and after uh, requirements, you know, data steward, analyst, modeler, statistician, methodology. You probably should have some grounding in, one or two of those hardcore things that you've done or can do. Uh, but I'm also asking questions around governance. I'm asking questions around storytelling. I'm asking questions about diplomacy. So when I'm, I'm generally talking to people that are more senior, I'm interested in, can they argue with me about something in a meaningful way that drives us to a solution? Can they look at a problem they've never seen before and do something more than just talk about how it's not fair and they don't know? Can they abstract what they know to something they've never heard about before? Do they have the ability to do that in a methodog methodological way, in a scientific way? Or do they just try this, try that, try this? Um, you talked about how do you manage them? Great question. So data science in different organizations has different um, faces. In some organizations, it's very centralized. You go to the cadre of data scientists. More often now, it's not. It's federated. It's all over the organization. You've got shadow data science everywhere. Everybody downloaded some tool and installed it and thinks they're great because they have that tool. So in the federated environment, fully federated, it's really about helping best practice gets spread through the organization and making sure that we are moving forward and not just trying things uh, and, and maybe providing some expert advice where it's needed and getting people to, to, to have a certain core set of skills. In the very focused environment, it's more about making sure that you don't become so insulated that you really lose touch with what the customers care about, what the organization cares about, what the business problems are. So you, you want to understand where your organization is in that 
continuum of fully federated to fully centralized? And are you there on purpose? And how do you effectuate change in the direction that's most meaningful for your organization there? And for that, by the way, I look at not just the technology and not just the processes, but the people and their mindset as well, because it's all part of that equation. Um, you talked a bit about how do you focus them. The big advice I would give there is the cost of doing nothing is not nothing. Be very careful that you understand what you're not doing while you're choosing to do what you're doing and making sure that you're choosing mindfully and that you're choosing meaningfully among these cherished and, and often very scarce resources to get the best bang for your buck and the most value for your customers and your shareholders. Um, for, in terms of how you inspire them, I talk about this a lot. You know, we, we need to be learning leaders. You can't just call yourself king and move on. You've got to learn something every day in this field. And if you're just learning, then you're being selfish. You ought to be teaching something every day, too. So I think you've got to be very humble. Uh, if you want to inspire people who have these awesome capabilities, you've got to give them exciting things to work on. But you've also got to help them understand that not everything we get to do is super sexy and exciting and that sometimes we have some basic blocking and tackling that we need to do. So you've really got to be much more of a, in my opinion, a much more of a servant leader in this environment. You've got to be bringing the skills to the table. You've got to be accessible. You've got to be with listener and you've also got to inspire by example and that means learning what you're talking about and not just talking about it wow well this has been uh a fast 50 minutes that's for sure uh you know next time we need to talk about applications of ai in areas in processes and functions like marketing supply chain accounting whatever it may be so I think that that would be a pretty interesting follow-up to this discussion. I, I agree. I totally. Every time we talk, I think we, we, we spawn you know, seven or eight new ideas and, and wish we talked about that 50 minutes ago. I think this is really, really valuable. I, I thank the people who raised the questions about education and inspiration. It's inspiring that people think about that. And the, the one piece of advice I'd leave you with is, you know, don't just wave your hands and say data science. Like, think about what do you mean when you say that and mean it for some reason. Don't just Don't just try to um, you know, channel something, you know, understand it, learn it. And it's exciting. There's so much to do in this field. Okay. And with that, just before we go very quickly, I want to read, this is a completely separate. I want to read a few sections from the San Jose Mercury News. And this is from the police blotter in Atherton, California. And if you don't know, Atherton is a very wealthy community in the heart of Silicon Valley. Okay, Anthony, Anthony, are you ready for this? Yeah, I was just reading that this morning. Okay, so here is, this is, this is, this is from the police blotter in yes. Atherton, California. Okay, a resident worried that a noisy hawk in a tree was in distress. When authorities arrived, the hawk was quiet and enjoying dinner. A pedestrian was reported after midnight wearing black pants and a white dress shirt. <laughs> Whatever. A man... Uh, was reported to be lying on the ground, possibly writing. And uh, finally, actually two more, a family reported being followed by a duck who resides on Tuscaloosa Avenue. And last, but definitely, <laughs> but definitely not least, a resident reported a large light in the sky. It turned out to be the moon. 
And, and on that profundity, I want to thank everybody for watching episode number 274 of CXO Talk. We've been speaking with Anthony Scrifignano, who is the chief data scientist at Dun & Bradstreet. And again, I'll ask you, please tell a friend about CXO Talk. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube. We'd really appreciate that. We have another great show next week, next Friday. We are speaking about uh, the role of data and AI in healthcare, drug discovery, and personalized medicine. So that's going to be an incredible show. Everybody, thank you so much, and have a great day. Mm -hmm.